When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Futurati podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Nam Sardar. Nam is the founder and CEO of Neil Capital, a returns-focused crypto asset investment firm that combines fundamental analysis with an active management approach. She became interested in cryptocurrency and DeFi in early 2020 and has since made it her mission to help others understand blockchain technology and its potential, hedge against inflation in a sustainable and emerging asset class, and generate and securely store wealth. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Nam, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working in crypto. Um, So I've been working in finance in the financial industry for the last 15 years. Um, I finished my undergrad in the US at the University of Georgia in 2002. And then I studied Spanish in between. And I went to Spain to do my master's, my MBA. And I got, I wrapped that up in 2005. And ever since, like, I think early 2006, I've been working in um, M&As, mergers and acquisitions. So as an analyst, and, you know, I proceeded from there to uh, work in the oil and gas field, where I've been working in the lab for the last 11 years here in Oman. So my first few years I was in Spain and then I moved to Oman, um, 2010, 2011. And ever since then I've been working for the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Oman. So we start, the Sovereign Wealth Fund gathers the nation's oil revenues and allocates them to different investment opportunities. So I used to work in uh, downstream oil and gas and large petrochemical and fertilizer projects. So when did you first hear about Bitcoin and how did that change the the course of history for you? Give us the rabbit hole story. Wow. Okay. So in, um, well, I'll tell you the truth. Um, Back in 2013, my older son was um, diagnosed with a very, very severe form of epilepsy. Oh no. And, yeah, so he started having seizures soon after he was born. And obviously that shook my life completely. Uh, and, you know, it led me down a rabbit hole to try and discover what happened to him. Um, and the more I looked, the more I found. And it kind of took me down this rabbit hole where um, 
I was looking into like the medical industry and everything that's going on with the vaccines and everything like that. So long story short, I came across a video um, that said uh, that was uh, uh, an interview of Aaron Russo. He's a director that passed away, but he was, you know, a well-known director, I think in the late 90s, um, the 2000s, I think until the time he passed. Um, and he was talking about the Federal Reserve and he was talking about reforming, you know, the, uh, like the IRS. And he was talking about some pretty radical concepts that uh, the powers that be uh, weren't excited about. Right. <laughs> um, but what happened is I distinctly remember a few words uh, from one of the uh, interviews that I that I saw. And it talked about, you know. The, the end goal of, uh, of uh, you know, let's say the people that uh, control everything um, to eventually be that, you know, we will be on this sort of a monetary system that will be digital and that will be uh, fully like controlled by centralized authorities in, in, yeah, like in every way. And that money can be turned off and on um at uh yeah at their at their disposal like whenever they feel like it so when the whole um pandemic began and it was announced on every mainstream mainstream um news outlet early to 2020 i was still working at my job uh, but the moment i heard the news and i heard all flights getting canceled and all of this stuff going on in china and we have a lot of Americans living here and all a lot of them had to go back all of a sudden. And like everything just came to a complete halt. Uh, nobody knew what was going on. So it just, I just uh, had, I had this premonition type um, recurring sort of like nightmares, you could say, where I kept hearing Aaron Russo's words in my head where all money will become centralized and controlled by these centralized authorities and turned on and off at their whims, basically. Um, so basically, based on some kind of scoring, you know, how good of a uh, obedient sort of uh, citizen you are and all of, all of that. And it led me down this path to, I was having sleepless nights, uh, early 2020, or let's say March 2020, when everything became official. I had completely forgotten from 2013 when I saw this interview till 2020, I completely, I was so absorbed by everything going on in my own life that I completely forgot about any of this. But when this happened and they made all these announcements and the, the whole world came to basically a halt, I said, there's something here and um, I need to figure out. I basically knew that I need to, needed to figure out an alternative to traditional banking. Uh, so that took me down like a one month intensive research process. We were anyway locked at home, um, unable to go to work and we were sitting at home and I was just telling my husband that something's going wrong and this is not gonna end well if we're not ready for what's coming. And I know what's coming is like a digital money is coming and it's gonna be very, very um, sort of intrusive on people's active, not like anybody's doing anything wrong. Like I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just a normal person living my normal life, uh, worrying about my kids and my family, you know. Um, 
But at the end of the day, I, I, I knew that I didn't want to be part of this um, dystopian society where um, you're completely controlled by, by, by centralized entities, to put it in a nice way. So I, you know, and, you know, I come from a tradition um, being Indian. My mom and dad are Indian. Uh, we have a, and, and anywhere here in the Middle East, we have a pretty strong tradition where people go and buy uh, gold, gold, sometimes even silver, but gold is a very regular sort of a purchase. Um, and you keep putting some money aside for gold on a regular basis. And I think it's a way of saying that, you know, this is sort of like a safety net, a safety net that could help us someday when, you know, in raining days. And, and I didn't have that culture personally, like me and my little family, my husband and my kids, we did believe in investing in property, but that was the only thing that we had invested in uh, until that point. Uh, so I just realized that everything sitting in the bank is a bit dangerous. And I went down this rabbit hole where I knew that there was there there had to be a solution. And if there wasn't, I was just ready to do anything to find one or create one or to you know figure out some alternative where your savings weren't completely exposed to right. uh, some you know centralized entities that would do anything they wanted with it. And I knew inflation was going to be a big risk. So at that point, when the pandemic began, it was it was like I was having recurring nightmares for a few weeks until I found cryptocurrency and Bitcoin led me slowly to Monero. And one thing led to another. And yeah, and that's how I discovered it. So so how big is the community over there that's dealing with cryptocurrencies in Oman? It almost doesn't even exist. So nobody even talked about it when I first got into it it was like it was like it's because I you know I work in the traditional financial sector or I used to until I quit my job about six months ago um, that means that we are I'm surrounded by people who very strictly follow the traditional financial system you know right um, the US dollar um, and the petrodollar, we, we live on the petrodollar system here. So our currency is back to the dollar. The crude oil that comes out of here is sold in dollars. So all of that is a very dollar-based system. And nobody ever, ever, ever like says, oh my God, I'm thinking of a system that could even remotely kind of uh, question that. Uh, so no one really, like there's not even a community. But now, since I got into it, um, I've registered a company um, which is also uh, operating here in the GCC, especially in Dubai. Dubai has all kinds of crypto uh, regulations in place. Um, so, that, so that now things have gotten uh, to the point where it's all sort of in the open. There's licenses, there's uh, authorizations, and we're doing everything um, in a completely regulated way, I guess you could say. So at this stage, everybody I know is trying to talk to me and make an appointment, especially my close friends. Um, a lot of them are getting in and looking to get in. So there's, there's, a, um, there's, I guess at this stage, there is curiosity and interest, especially because inflation is uh, starting to be felt. I find it interesting how even within one region, the crypto, uh, the awareness of cryptocurrencies and the enthusiasm for the underlying technology varies a lot country to country. 
So I've been doing a lot of research on sanctions evasion using cryptocurrencies. And in Iran, there are some very sophisticated operators who run these mines. They sometimes run them in mosques because in Iran, mosques, mosques get free subsidized electricity. And right now, they even have a, an arrangement with the Iranian Central Bank where they are licensed to mine Bitcoin, but they have to sell it back. And then it looks like the Iranian Central Bank is going to use that to try to pay for imports. So they're effectively selling oil that they can't sell directly on the open market uh, in, in this more roundabout fashion. So it's, it, what do you think accounts for just the country by country difference in crypto adoption? I think what accounts is uh, what or like what factors into who gets into crypto more than others is um, like your microcosm. I think to some extent, your political views and how how much trust in the system you have, because literally it all comes down to we're facing a, a we're facing, I guess, an intersection in the history of humanity now where we do have an alternative to state sponsored money. Um, so back in the day, um, I'm not even sure when, um, the, the separation of church from state was quite, um, was quite polemic, was quite taboo. Right. It was considered something, uh, radical to even suggest, oh, the state wouldn't be the center of all religious authority. Um, but you know, eventually that was the case and you separate, we saw the separation of church from state and it's widely accepted. So I think where we're going now, because of the state's irresponsible um, history with uh, dealing with money and issuance of money, and uh, it's it's highly ir irresponsible the way the Fed has dealt with the whole uh, pandemic over the last two years, and it's going to have disastrous results going forward for a good part of humanity. We're going to start seeing a widespread uh, distrust being born uh, so some people I think are early to it. Some people are later to it, but everyone's going to feel the money evaporating from their bank account. And historically you start having food riots and revolutions when the food budget of a family exceeds about 40% of their income. So the moment you saw 40% of monthly income uh, or annual income, any, any income, um, being occupied by food, just the food. Uh, you start to see, you saw revolutions in, um, like you saw the Arab Spring that began because of it. The French Revolution began because you had, you know, food exceeding a certain part of the, of the family budget. So that's uh, unfortunately happening in Sri Lanka right now. It's happening in Lebanon, in parts of like Turkey. In, in a lot of the developing world, we're starting to see disturbances. And with the sanctions now added on to this whole post-pandemic era, we're seeing um, the wheat supply from Russia has gotten, Russia is the highest exporter, the largest exporter of wheat in the world. And wheat is a pretty important crop, especially in developing countries. Um, and you see, if you see a map, um, I recently presented at the Monero conference and there's a, there's a map. If you want, I can screen share. I have my slides. Um, it shows that a lot of the less developed countries are basically 100% reliant on Russia and Ukraine for their entire wheat uh, imports. Right. So you imagine what happens now. Um, these countries have their own expenses. You know, they're poor countries. Um, they have to sell uh, export goods to get dollars. And then with those dollars, they buy wheat and their energy, their crude oil and their supplies. They're not, you know, energy rich countries. 
Um, and they're all getting to the point where Lebanon has literally run out of wheat just a day or two ago. So we're going to start seeing countries um, having bad situations with food now. And that is, uh, you know, whether we like it or not, it's just a bad uh, policy right from the central bank uh, level that has led to this. So I'm I'm thinking that a um, good part of humanity will slowly, a lot of people are so caught up in their day-to-day life that they're not, you know, they're not on point with exactly what's going on. Like economists like me and you, like people who are tuned in might uh, see these things pretty soon. Um, but there are, there are people that will see it because it'll affect them directly. So what I feel is, the distrust of um, government and government's uh, total control of our money issuance will slowly be questioned over the coming months and years. And at some point, we're going to see a disconnection where the governments and the states will be the only and the sole issuers of, uh, of the money we use. Like it won't just be dollars. It might be Amazon or it might be large enterprises or, uh, or cryptocurrencies that will take some portion of um, humanity's transactions, you know, out of government's uh, total control. I don't know if I answered that question. (laughs) That was a lot of great stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it strikes me that um, uh, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, uh, Monero, they're all still too geeky for the average person on the street. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's it's very easy for somebody to hand you a dollar bill um, and then you know what to do with it. Uh, mm. pe- you can take it into a store. Uh, people have basically been trained from birth to work with the currency system that we already have. This has mm. kind of come out of left field. We have no courses that we're teaching in grade school or high school or mm. basically in college either. And and so this is, this is such a new phenomenon that... Uh, uh, the the average person on the street doesn't know if they should actually be paying attention to it, and uh, mm-hmm. and and that seems to be kind of the the biggest obstacle that we're we're facing right now is that um, uh, kind of how to, how to get your grandparents to actually think mm-hmm. in terms of cryptocurrency. I mean, this is such a paradigm shift for them that um, they don't even know how to how to wrestle these ideas to the ground because you you mean I can just uh, send stuff to somebody and I don't have to have anything physical. It's just something on my phone or mm. my computer. Um, they don't quite know how to rationalize that. Um, mm. Is, is that kind of what you're seeing over there? And, and is there, uh, is there an actual solution to this that's uh, quick and fast because it looks like we're running into some major problems in the world that are going to need this solution sooner than yeah. later. I agree with you. Um, So I was recently in India. I couldn't go to India for uh, the duration of the pandemic, the 2020 to 22 period. So um, when I quit my job, I I went to India because my older son, who's in a wheelchair, basically, he is looked after by my mom. Uh, My mom looks after him and she lives in India. So I hadn't seen my mom or my son for for that time. Uh, So anyway, so I went there. Yeah, and um, I spent three months in India. And what I noticed was um, the QR payments. So, pay, you know, making payments with a with a QR code is okay. actually pretty widespread. It's widely being uh-huh. practiced already. Yeah, surprising, right? 
Um, so the smallest vendors, you know, like a little guy uh, on his little cart uh, selling uh, fruits on the street. Um, if you tell him, hey, I'll pay you with the uh, GPay, which is Google Pay, he's all set up on it. Um, or you have this thing called uh, Paytm in India. That's the main uh, payment mechanism. So, you know, he'll just, uh, he'll have a plastic thing, uh, laminate a laminated piece of paper. So, you know, it's it uh, weathers like the rain and, and the whatever. So anyway, he'll have that thing hanging on his cart with a QR code laminated in a piece of paper and uh, you scan it and he receives it. And the smallest, like the rickshaw guys, the guys who, who ride the, you know, the three-wheeler rickshaws right. and stuff like that, they're all set up on it. So what uh-huh. happened is why India has um, has moved in that direction is because I think it was 2016 when the government um, did a demonetization. So what happened was uh, they said, you know, the, denom- the high denominated um, currency notes were discontinued. Uh, some of them. So I think there was like a thousand rupee that was discontinued and there was a 500 that was discontinued. Mm -hmm. And instead they brought in a brand new 2000 rupee note. So what that did was, um, and I distinctly remember having traveled to India uh, like a week after they demonetized the the currency, right? So I mean, mainly um, large expenses, like let's say if you have a 10 day trip to India, you're going to need a few thousand rupee notes to get your ex- to get by with your expenses because i mean it's thousand is not that much in dollar terms so uh that's a pretty commonly used um you know a commonly used uh currency note so when they demonetized them meaning they were no longer accepted the, the prime minister himself went on television uh one evening at i think like 8 or 9 p.m and he did a live broadcast that literally every person in the country saw. And he said, starting tomorrow morning, starting midnight, these, um, you know, these notes are no longer accepted. They're gone. <laughs> and you have no idea. Like the way Indians hoard cash is unbelievable. <laughs> you will literally see closets full of um, of like currency or like literally under the mattress, <laughs> that sort of thing. Wow. Um, yeah. And and. Just to give you an example, property transactions, when you buy and sell apartments or you buy and sell land, they're mainly, they're done like half in cash. So you already have a designated black and white portion that you'll pay uh, through bank accounts and the rest goes through cash. And cash is as high as 50 to 60% of these transactions. So yeah, Um, yeah, and if, yeah. So India is one of those countries where taxation is pretty low. It's it's an interesting case study, actually. So what I noticed was uh, now on this last trip was everyone set up on their QR codes, including my mom. My mom is 68 years old. And I like, for example, my mom's somewhere else and I'm outside in the market and uh, I have to pay for something. And my card, because it's an international visa, it won't work on the machines. So I call up my mom and she says, WhatsApp me the QR code. And I send it to her and she has, she's already settled the bill with the guy, Wow! you know, that I'm buying something from. Yeah. So that's already going on like right now. So what I feel is, uh, you know, and crypto is a QR based payment system. It's not very different from scanning a code and making a payment. So I think if, if some, if, if the Indian population is already set up on QRs, like you go to any vendor and you can, 
pick up all your groceries with a, with a QR code payment, then I don't think moving to cryptocurrencies will be that much of a leap because we're okay. already there. All right. Yeah, I feel like in developing countries, we're already there. In developed countries, like in the first world, I feel like it may actually ironically be uh, a slower adaptation because, you know, the everybody's got a visa and a MasterCard and everyone's got a bank account. But in a lot of these developing countries, I think, because people are already so used to, at least in a country like India, I'm, I'm not speaking for a lot of the other countries, like I wouldn't know, but I think China's already set up with QRs. Like a lot of the developing countries, I think in general are familiar with the technology and how to scan a code and make a payment. How, so basically you scan a QR code, you enter the amount that you're paying and you press send. It's three steps. So yeah, so that's how crypto works as well. But on, but on the other hand, there are, <clears throat> there's something like 14,000 coins that are listed on CoinGecko right now. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and, and everybody, it, it's this wide open marketplace. And it's, uh, it, over here, we talk about it being the Wild West because there's there doesn't seem to be a lot of rules in place. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, everybody's fighting for people's attention and uh, trying to eke out a little bit more usage here or there. Um, so with with that many options out there, I mean, how does how does somebody actually make sense out of uh, this is a better one to use than the other ones? And uh, and then how do we uh, how does this pan, uh, how, moving forward? Um, we we can't move forward with fourteen thousand options every time you yeah. walk into a marketplace. I mean, that's just obviously not going to work. Uh, so, mm. how do you see that playing out moving forward? I do think what you just mentioned is probably the greatest challenge with the crypto ecosystem, because with those fourteen thousand coins and some that aren't even listed. The other day I, I, I saw somewhere that there are 18,000 coins. Um, we're looking at a sort of a gambling arena. Right. Crypto's turned into this gambling arena where you just go and pick coins and just hope you know you hit the jackpot with some of them. Um, and, and people are coming into crypto for that reason. There, so I don't think people are looking to crypto to necessarily transact and looking for a currency that allows them to exchange value and exchange uh, goods and services with uh, with merchants and vendors, although that is that is happening. So what I would say, how to find the good coins? If you look at um, something like Coin Cards, Coin Cards is a website that allows you to buy these um, these vouchers. And they could be for Amazon or they could be for other vendors um, across the world. Well, actually, they're they're active in the in the US and Canada right now. And maybe I'm not sure in Europe, but it's I think starting to go into other parts of the world as well. So what you can do is um, go and buy these vouchers on coin cards and pay with your cryptocurrencies. Now, if you start looking at which cryptos are accepted, uh, you you see the top five or uh, 10 of them. Uh, you see uh, Bitcoin used to be at the top. There was Dash. There was, uh, I think, some Ethereum, mm -hmm. XRP, and Monero. Uh, but as of the last, I think, update, which was for the month of March, we saw that Monero has taken up 51% of coin cards. Coin cards is, you know, um, 
up their volume. So that means that 51% of all coin cards transactions, and they grow every month, you know, this is a very quick, fast growing sector um, because crypto is the fastest growing sector uh, or one of the fastest growing sectors, uh, especially in digital payments that we have today. Um, and we're looking at Monero taking up more and more of that volume. So I would say if you look at those metrics and you check out the top uh, currencies that are being used for transactions, then I think it gives you a little bit of the indication that, okay, these are good coins to, to have uh, for payments. Because what, what that allows you to do is uh, you go on coin cards, you buy your voucher, and you can actually uh, gift it to your daughter or your friends. Um, and they can buy an iPhone with it, or they can go online and buy a computer with it. Like, Anything you want to buy, electronics, you um, then you have a website called Travala, Travala.com. I'm not sure you're familiar with that. Nope, never heard of it. Um, you can check that out sometime. It's a website that allows you to buy um, plane tickets. And it started out only with plane tickets, but it's now um, for hotel bookings and reservations of uh, like adventures and trips. And it um, obviously allowed you at checkout to pay with Visa, MasterCard and like the traditional PayPal and things like that. But it has a whole, I think, up to 20 cryptocurrencies that it now accepts. Not now, okay. but like it's been over two years. Ever since I discovered crypto, Travala was in uh, in the business doing, you know, checkouts, checking out with crypto. So I can take Monero. Monero is a good thing to use online because it's cash. You know, it literally functions like digital cash. So because cash is such a good mechanism, like you said, the U.S. dollar is easy. We all understand it. The same, the same, uh, the digital version of that is Monero, uh, digital cash. And let, I'll, I'll, I'll save the details of, you know, why that, why that currency is considered digital cash in my, in my understanding. But um, yeah, to answer that question is, I would say let's go on to the main websites and the main businesses that have been transacting in crypto and start looking at the volumes of which cryptocurrencies are widely used as money. So I would say that would eliminate most of these 14, 15, 18,000 currencies, and you would literally be left with a handful of them. And then, and then you know, you kind of dig into, okay, out of this 10 or 15 currencies, which ones are the best for payments? What are the benefits? And um, sort of advantages and disadvantages of each one. And then you start studying those. I, I guess that's a good way to maybe start. Just just go and look at what people are actually using. And that narrows the list down 99%. Yes. Utilization, real world use utilization is what it comes down to. Yeah. So, 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 so what you're, what you're saying is somewhere along the way, we're going to have a lot of collateral damage here. And so with, um, uh, so with a lot of cryptocurrency companies, uh, going out of business sometime in the future, is there are there a lot of mergers that take place? Is uh, do they auction off assets? Uh, how how does this play out? I feel that uh, if you go on my website neilcapital.io, um, okay, uh, there is an explanation of cryptocurrencies and crypto assets. So. The way I understood crypto is that it's divided into two. Um, it's this, you know, crypto is broken down into two uh, sub uh, parts. Um, one of them is the currencies. Now, currencies should not be controlled by centralized authorities. All of the problems in the world today are because we have a few handful of people sitting behind closed doors and taking the most important decisions on behalf of all of humanity. 
Um, and this centralized group of people um, will never let go of the power they have. Um, and therefore, we see the divide between rich and poor getting wider and wider because of the money printing and the, let's say, the confiscation of resources that happens because of money printing. I recently gave a talk in which I explained this process. So I just, I'll just quickly go into that. So if you think of two bowls of soup, uh, one bowl is a thick, creamy bowl, but it's like a liquid bowl. It's thick and creamy, but it's liquid. And the other bowl of soup has chunks of uh, food in it, like vegetables. Now, think of inflation as this constant water, trickle of water that pours into both of the bowls of soup. If you, when you have the liquid bowl of soup, no, you know, no matter how thick your soup is, at some point, the level of that soup rises because it's getting diluted with water and then it spills over. A lot of that liquid is lost because right. the water, the trickle of water never stops. So that, so that's, you lose that every day. But when you have a soup, that's a lot, a lot of it is solid chunks of either meat or veggies. The trickle of water comes into the soup, but it displaces the liquid part of that soup. But your solid pieces of vegetables remain in your bowl. Right. So what does that mean? That's an that's an analogy that I used in, in this recent talk that I did. And it's basically telling you that when your savings are all cash, so like US dollar or euro or yens or rupees or reals, what we have here, but fiat issued cash because all of the currencies are being diluted at the same rate, you know, by paper money, then your bowl where you saved your value so your savings are being mm, sort of spilled out of your bowl um, if if majority of your savings are in that liquid, right, in that cash. But on the other hand, if you've got hard assets, you're not losing as much. Yes, you do have a you do have a cash component. Everyone has to have some cash to get by with your daily expenses. You need cash to pay for gas, for food, for everything else. But if majority of your savings um, and if you have been disciplined with spending less than you earn, putting some money aside, converting that to investments, and we're, um, so there's only a few of those investments that account for those chunks of veggies, right? right? Not everything is a good investment. But if you have bought those assets that hold value and that should hold value in, in this inflationary scenario, then you know they will stay in that bowl. They won't spill out. Um, you'll you'll still have that value, no matter how much water is poured into that bowl. So my point with that is we've had this we've had this centralized system that has led to inflation, and that's going to impact every single person alive because humanity uses uh, fiat currencies. Right. We use government issued currencies, no matter what country we live in, and it doesn't matter which country's chart you look at. Every country's chart, um, I wish I had my charts ready and I would pull them up. I, um, but literally every country's chart is showing this hockey stick type pattern of money printing um, since the start of 2020. Now that's not an innocent practice. That's a very, very malicious, um, it's the worst thing that somebody can do to you because it's coming into your house and stealing stuff away from you. Except it doesn't happen in person, it happens 
because we're all forced to use this you know this means of exchange which is fiat currencies to keep our life savings and unfortunately majority of the world's population doesn't know this is happening and they don't know how to protect themselves from it so i i can't even remember what you asked me but <laughs> <laughs> but i was my point was that uh, we are in a crisis type situation it's going to get worse for some as compared to others before the before people i think start to realize um on a wider scale and something has to be done and yes so i i think what i was trying to say is historically we we've had um limited resources like land uh like so land property uh whether residential whether it's agricultural whether it's commercial and then we've had gold and silver you know but the longest serving uh, stores of value for humans that has over a 5000 year history is is uh, gold gold and silver monetary metals there is um there's nothing that humanity and mankind knows that has saved value as uh, as well as gold has so that's one thing but we're entering a digital or we already are in a digital era um and the the reason why gold succeeded as money was because it was used widely by the marketplace you know everybody um whether when a roman person went to the uh, persian empire and he carried a little bag of gold coins with him they understood each other you know he didn't have to speak the same language but if he showed the gold coin to a seller and he wanted something he'd be able to exchange that for goods and services so that was a currency that was accepted by everybody it wasn't like one king from some corner of the world said gold is going to be money because i said so you know what i mean it's something that the marketplace decided so that's what we call free market capitalism in free markets the market decides what the value uh the store of value and the medium of exchange will be um and the beauty of that is that gold is decentralized you don't have one authority that controls it you don't have one authority that issues it right of course you can have wars and you know they confiscate another country's gold when that country loses the war those were different situations i'm talking about when the marketplace and millions of people came together and said we're all going to sell and buy from each other with this metal you know and then that became established as money and one of the reasons it was established as money was because it was limited in supply you know right um everything that's limited in supply maintains its value um another thing another quality of money is the fungibility aspect right that one gold coin like a gram of gold is equal to another gram of gold with the same purity so like 22 carats gram of gold a 22 carats gram of gold you don't care if it's square or round or like shaped like a ball <laughs> or even in the shape of a jewelry if you have to accept it and do a transaction you'll take it right because you know it's pure and you know the weight and basically you know the specifics so that means it's fungible just like paper currency is fungible the problem with paper currency and the savings that we have in bank accounts is that th- there's no scarcity because they can print unlimited amounts that reduces what you own of the bigger pie without having like for no fault of yours y- your savings are let's say 
uh, I don't know, like 1% of the bigger pie of the economy. As they print more and more money, the pie gets bigger and bigger. And now your savings are not that 1% of the bigger pie. You know what I mean? So your piece of the pie is getting smaller and smaller each day as these um, banksters <laughs> print more and more money. And who gets that money? They get it. They and their friends. There's this thing called the cantillionaire effect. Um, the bankers sitting in the large he uh, hedge funds and the large uh, retail banks and commercial banks, they're they're given the money to you know loan it out to people because we're living in a debt-based monetary system where money is created as debt um, and governments have to repay that debt to the central banks um, with interest. And that interest is paid by the people that are at the lowest sort of rung in society. So when the bank uh, lends it out as a, lends out, let's say, I don't know, like $500,000 as a mortgage, um, that person repaying that mortgage, with every repayment, there's less money in the system. So the more we um, repay our debts and things like that, the economy shrinks and that, that money disappears from the system. We're writing that off. And the more new debt that's created, there's more money in the system. So inflation is inherently uh, embedded in the system. Yes. So in crypto terms, we say it's a feature, not a bug. Right. It's designed that way. So our savings are designed to lose value every day. The more we expose them to this uh, Ponzi scheme, uh, which is fiat currency. So I think at this stage, we're at this cross section in the history of humanity, where if we haven't already realized it, uh, most people are going to wake up one day and realize that they have been deceived and that there is a very, very strong need for each, each and every one of us to get um, as diversified away from this system and into hard assets, whether that's land, whether that's gold, silver, whether that's certain types of cryptos. Now, I think my whole... I think my whole passion has taken me in the direction of finding out what that cryptocurrency is or those cryptocurrencies are and why. So, yeah. Well, I, I want to stick with that theme. So let's talk a little bit about what the proposed solution is. You are very famous for being a, an advocate of Monero and rather critical of Bitcoin and Ethereum both. I've been in the crypto space for a while. I've worked at two different crypto assets, startups, and I'm at one now. But most of my attention has been focused on Bitcoin because it's the most famous. And then I've spent a fair bit of time on Ethereum as well because it's the second most famous. And it has all these interesting right. applications like smart contracts and DAOs and other things, which just as a as a nerd and a futurist draw my, my interest. Uh, could, could you just briefly give us an overview of how Monero works and you can be, you know, relatively non-technical if you like, uh, or, or feel free to dump it on our audience. They, they love that sort of thing. Uh, and then how it, how it is distinct from Bitcoin. Like, why is it, do you, why is it that you think Monero is the, the winner of the crypto asset wars? It's, it's the one that is the real form of digital cash that will solve these problems you've been alluding to. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Um. I'm not. I'm not going to be able to share slides, right? Like they're not going to be visible. Well, you could, but they, nobody a, would be able to see it. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. For us. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. But let me share some slides with you if you don't mind. It'll it'll make it easier to. I'll just I'll just describe it to them. I'll I will lovingly describe the slides as they come up, Saran, <laughs> <laughs> like an old timey radio uh, radio personality. I went into why cash has been important, why we all trust the the dollar bills, and and you know why we sh- what is the positive like why we should be using cash. Um, I'll just start from I'll pick up from that point, and then we'll we'll go into digital cash. So. Cash has certain uh, advantages against uh, visas and MasterCard. And that's also cash. Basically, it's all the same cash. It's just the method of uh, utilization. But actual cash transactions are private and secure. They have no associated costs. So there's no 3% of fees associated with it. Um, there's no data leakage. So the two parties transacting uh, are aware of what was purchased, what was sold. Uh, and the other details related to the transaction, how much the value of the the transaction was. Uh, Cash also allows liquid immediate access to funds. There's no third-party involvement. There's no debt, and it's a a method of instant settlement. So then we come into this. You asked me why Monero and not Bitcoin. Right. So one of the key properties of Cash, I I hope you're able to see this. Yeah, we can. Fungibility, yeah. It's fungibility. Um, which basically means that if I were to offer you two twenty out of two twenty dollar bills and you had to choose one, you wouldn't care that you know uh, I gave you a particular twenty dollar bill, or you wouldn't be like, oh, now I only want this one in your left hand, right, or or something like that. You you wouldn't care because the utilization uh, is exactly the same. So imagine a situation, and this is relating to Bitcoin where your $20 bill carries, if you turn it around, it carries a list of everybody who held that bill before you had you had it in your hands. Now, imagine that it passed through, um, imagine that it was that $20 bill was involved in a theft, you know? It was stole, stolen um, from somebody uh, and then it landed in your hands because it because the thief went to the shop the shopkeeper right. uh, or the grocery store and he paid with it. And then he gave you change back and you got that $20 bill. So now your name gets added to that $20 bill. So that's basically what a Bitcoin transaction is. A Bitcoin transaction has this from the start of the time, from the starting of uh, or from the origin of that Bitcoin, from the time the miner mined it. I'm assuming you're familiar with the Bitcoin mining and how it's created, right? Yes. Uh, So Bitcoin is created on computers around the world um, by, you know, computers that are mining the Bitcoin on the Bitcoin uh, algorithm and they get rewards, which means they get new Bitcoin as a as a performance price, as a reward for solving certain um, equations. Um, So when they get that Bitcoin, the miner. That's that's a virgin Bitcoin, meaning it's it's got absolutely no history attached to it. Right. But as it proceeds through the marketplace and it's used in different transactions, um, that Bitcoin uh, takes on the history of every transaction that it's ever been uh, involved in. So it's like a dollar bill would have the name of every person that held it before you since the time it was minted at the minting place, the government's mint or the, the wherever the, they mint the money or they print the money. So if if that was the case, and if that dollar bill had been used in 
like let's say a theft or the sale of drugs or something like that, you wouldn't want to pay the whole dollar for it or the whole, you, you would say that $20 has lost some value or it's a bit tainted. And I will only give you 17 for that. Give me the $20 bill, but because it's, you know, it's a, not a clean one, I'll just give you 17 for it. So we would be in a scenario like that, except cash is fungible. It's interchangeable. It's uniform and it's absolutely interchangeable. So this slide basically says that you would pay a dollar for a dollar bill if it had no unacceptable use in such a scenario. And imagine that it was held by a celebrity before um, it came to you. Uh, then you'd be like, oh, wow, you know, I don't know, Madonna or somebody famous who's not alive, like Kobe Bryant held this dollar bill before me. I'm just going to hang it in my living room or I'm going to keep it and not even sell it. Or if you let go of it someday, you'll sell it for more than what it's worth. Uh, or what its face value is. So a strange scenario like that is where Bitcoin puts us because it's not fungible. Could, could I could I just briefly summarize that? Because if, if people aren't looking at the slides, like it might be kind of hard for them to hold the picture in their mind. Sure, sure. So one of the things we want in a, in a money is fungibility where each discrete mm-hmm. unit is indistinguishable from another unit. So it's, you know, yes. a dollar is always a dollar and you can trade a dollar for another dollar and it never really matters. And you painted this picture wherein if each dollar carried with it, it's prior history in the way that Bitcoin UTX UTXOs do, then it, mm-hmm. it could be the case that, individual units are not interchangeable with each other. If one, if a dollar had been used for a drug transaction, it might only be worth 75 cents. Or if it had been held by a famous person, it might be worth, you know, a dollar 75 cents. So the fungibility property would have been broken and that would compromise yeah. its usefulness as a, as a money. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. And, and you're, you're, the case you're, you're, the case you're making is that Bitcoin does exactly this thing. The, the distributed ledger that tracks all the addresses that have ever held it and every transaction has ever been involved in breaks that fungibility property. And I assume we're yeah. going to say Monero doesn't. I assume that's the punchline. Yes, yes. Monero doesn't. Okay. So the, you know, cryptocurrency is such a fast evolving space that uh, technology has improved. And it just it's unfortunate that so many people are stuck on. And it's like saying what uh, people that are stuck on Bitcoin um, it's like saying, um, oh, cell phones are such an amazing technology. I'm just going to hold on to this Nokia uh, for the rest of my life, you know, <laughs> and he's completely going to discard the fact that you have iPhones and Samsung Galaxies right now <laughs> that do a lot more than Nokia's did. But I love my Nokia and I'm just going to, you know, hold on to it forever. That's what's going on in the crypto space with the whole Bitcoin mania. Because there's only so many of them. Could you you tell me how it is that Monero avoids dragging that history around with it? Does it, I mean, I don't know much about Monero, really. I I was looking over the white papers a little bit in preparation for this interview, but I really haven't taken a deep look at it. So does it just mechanistically not have a distributed ledger? Does it have privacy, uh, a privacy layer that's so good that the distributed layer, Mm -hmm. the distributed ledger does not allow you to track it? over time or you, or you can never tie it to an address? How, how is it that it maintains fungibility in a way that Bitcoin does not? Okay, so there are three um, very technical aspects to Monero. It's a completely distributed ledger okay. and it's completely decentralized. The beauty of Monero is it's even more decentralized than Bitcoin. And why do I say that? When Bitcoin originally came out, every human being 
was supposed to be able to take any computer they had uh, lying around their house and mine Bitcoin with it. Right. It gave you, me, and the guy pulling a rickshaw in some little town in India an opportunity to mine that currency. And each one of us, every human being, could turn into a central bank, essentially, right. and create that currency in a completely, completely decentralized fashion where no single there was no single point of failure right. and there was no single centralization of authority with millions and millions and millions of nodes, you know, running that that uh, algorithm. Well, what happened was a few years into Bitcoin's creation, Bitcoin was uh, there was this, there were these machines called the ASICs mm -hmm. that are Chinese manufactured uh, mining uh, computers that came into the market, and they use every uh, every uh, component of that uh, of that computer only to mine Bitcoin. Right. So imagine the hash rate that you were getting from a normal computer. Um, you that normal computer like literally. Uh, went out of the race, you know, when the ASICs took over. Right. So, so the so the algorithm of Bitcoin was susceptible to being taken over by ASICs, um, and literally it put it put the CPUs, meaning like the normal laptops and the and the desktop computers that we all had, it put them out of business. Like they became useless at mining because the ASICs. What they did was every component, every tiny little component in that machine was um, purposed to mine Bitcoin only. So unfortunately, that led to a centralization of Bitcoin mining, where now what you have is these humongous large mining farms where there's millions of computers under one roof. And those, uh, obviously, that's a multi-million dollar investment. And they will have to, uh, you know, uh, they will have to comply with regulations. So they come under regulatory pressure because they've become such large centralized authorities. Uh, some of these companies trade on the stock market like Red Hat from Canada. Yep. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a publicly traded stock and it's a it's a Bitcoin mining company. They, they have large ASICs farms and they have a good uh, electricity cost uh, arrangement in Canada. And uh, that's all they do. So when you have a company that's listed on the stock exchange that's mining Bitcoin, I mean, it's very easy to shut it down. Right, you know right. what I mean? Yeah, it's not the same as going into millions and billions of people's basements and, and telling them to shut down their computer, which is impossible to do, which is what Monero does. So Monero has an algorithm which is resistant to ASICs. It's called RandomX. Um, and that allows it to maintain decentralization and not have these centralized pockets of mining. Um, so it's superior in that sense. And the privacy aspect of Monero comes from um, there's, I believe there's three uh, different uh, technologies. There's ring signatures. Um, ring signatures is now I'm I'm not going to go into the technical aspects because it's just a little bit too technical for me. But there's ring CTs. Um, then there's um, so there's there's let's just say there are three different technologies that have evolved much after you know a few years after bitcoin was created and they allow for the obfuscation of the sender the receiver and the amounts so there's three things that monero does the sender so whoever is sending the transaction the send, sending that money 
is not uh, visible on the blockchain. Whoever's receiving it is again, not visible on the blockchain and the amount is not visible on the blockchain. So how much was transacted is not visible. So that's the beauty of, it's basically the beauty of cash that is taken to digital form. Because when the sender, the receiver and the amounts are not visible, you basically have an obfuscated blockchain and in place of Bitcoin's transparent blockchain. The transparent blockchain would be wonderful if the government used it. Um, let's say the government adopted uh, Bitcoin and said, we're going to do all our transactions and all our accounting in Bitcoin. Well, that would be a beautiful thing to have because government would be held accountable. But instead, what's happening is it's the people that are using Bitcoin and it's the people that are being then surveilled. You know, they yeah. have the government authorities, the tracing uh, companies like CypherTrace and uh, blockchain analytics companies that are tracing their transactions and what they're doing. So it's it's turned on its head. So Bitcoin's intention was to hold authorities accountable. That hasn't happened. It's holding people accountable where they shouldn't be held accountable. Like even a $600 transaction is getting flagged and, you know, I mean, it's just not good. So so let me, let me ask you a, a little bit different kind of question. Not, I mean, the world has gotten to this point where we've had a few hundred currencies in the world uh, basically sponsored by each each uh, country in the world. And, um, and now we've, we've kind of blown the doors wide open um, with uh, thousands and thousands of, of cryptocurrencies out there. Um, what, what is the ideal number? And can you, can you fathom in your mind a scenario where um, we have uh, a thousand cryptocurrencies that survive and, and do well? Um, I'm, I'm thinking of maybe um, each one carves out a little niche because they're better at creating loans for this or they're, uh, they're tied mm -hmm. to the fashion industry or maybe they're tied to the insurance industry or maybe they're um, mm -hmm. uh, tied to some other industry. But um, so each one could carve out their own separate niche. And if, in fact, all of the cryptocurrencies start collapsing and we get down to just like a dozen of them remaining, then isn't that the same as having a central authority like we have right now uh, with uh, Federal Reserve Bank and uh, central banks around the world? Uh, don't we run into that same kind of problem? Doesn't it kind of work its way in that direction? So a lot of these cryptocurrencies that you mentioned are proof of stake coins. Uh, so far, we've been discussing proof of work coins, right. uh, and that's where I draw the distinction in the ecosystem, the cryptocurrencies and the crypto assets. Um, so, so far, I think most of our discussion was focused around cryptocurrencies, um, currencies that can be utilized uh, to exchange value uh, for goods and services. But uh, when you talk about crypto assets, which is the majority, the vast majority of these uh, you know, tokens that you see listed on CoinGecko, they're crypto assets. So what they're doing is uh, there might be a game uh, that some people like to play, uh, some young people, uh, and they go online and they play these games. And then uh, there's a company that uh, created that game and they say, okay, you can win this uh, um, gaming coin uh, if you win, if you win, so if you get so many points on your game. So a lot of them are, you know, things like that. So I don't see them ever being money or anything 
remotely close to that. Uh, they're in centralized hands, you know, little, little companies, startups that are creating these electronic games to keep people busy. And uh, they obviously have a lot of people interested in playing those games. So they give them these tokens and that makes their game more popular because their token is trading online for some value, like five cents or whatever. But it keeps the people interested and they keep playing those games so they can win more tokens and so on and so forth. But that's a completely different side of crypto. You know, that's like a side of crypto where um, you have these small little startup companies that have like proper teams, like you'll have a chief technology officer and you'll have a CEO and all of that. It's a completely centralized authority. And they've created this company and this is what they do. Then, like you said, there might be a company like Ava that's doing loans, you know, housing loans, or there might be a company that's going into the insurance side of things and, and monetizing and tokenizing uh, their products on, on crypto tokens. Not crypto is um so the word crypto has been distorted. Cryptography basically comes from like a Greek word that um it, that talks about obfuscation or sort of hiding something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but none of that is happening with these <laughs> proof of stake coins. They're just centralized uh, little companies that issue their own coins and they start trading all of a sudden and people buy and sell them and hoard them. And a lot of them have a valid use case. To me, the most valid use case is you 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 get into a good project where they're trying to solve a real world problem in the financial industry, and they allow you to stake that token. Um, and you can get up to 15, 20% staking those tokens. And in addition, over time, if you've held it for a while and staked it, staking is basically like earning interest on your coins. So if you hold them, um, then eventually when the project improves and the market situation improves, you actually get a price appreciation and you get your interest, which is your staking yield from holding that token. So you get a double benefit. So I see the use case of those types of um, proof of stake coins in that area, like in replacing certain functions of the traditional financial industry, Uh, maybe insurance, maybe loans, maybe a lot of these financial products that a lot of these uh, crypto companies are coming up with. But currencies are a completely different thing. Cryptocurrencies, there's a few of them. There's uh, the Bitcoin forks. You know, Bitcoin had these internal wars about the block size a few yep. years ago, yep. right. 2017, 18, I think. And they they took the Bitcoin code and a lot of different coins came out of that. So there was Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, um, BSV, and so BSV, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, and there's Bitcoin, the original Bitcoin. Um, so you so those coins are still being used um, in a lot of places. Like depending on which country you go to, a lot of people just use Bitcoin Cash. Um, so those are currencies. They're serving the purpose of you know buying and selling. Like you go to a restaurant, you pay with that. I see that as its own use case, right? Um, a use case where you exchange those tokens in the real world and you get things of value in exchange for that. So Monero comes in that category. Monero is not a fork of Bitcoin. It's an original code base. In fact, we don't even know who wrote the white paper of Monero because it was written by an anonymous, um, uh, you know, an, an anonymous author. Interesting. In sim- in very similar circumstances who disappeared after issuing the white paper. He just disappeared. So. A lot of people um, 
made a comparison and actually studied the Monero white paper and the language and the <clears throat> excuse me, the language uh, used in that, you know, and the grammar and analyzed the handwriting, not handwriting, but like the, yeah, just the method of, of writing the white paper with the Bitcoin white paper. And I found a lot of similarities and it's not, um, it's not uh, strange to suggest this because ring CTs, ring, uh, you know, the ring CTs and a lot of the, the technologies that Monero today uses were suggested in Satoshi's original um, writings when, when they came out in 2009 so, or 2008. So, you know, what a lot of people believe is that Bitcoin um, had a lot of issues. It came out in early 2009. And then in early or sometime in 2014, we had the white paper of Monero that came out, um, which ended up, you know, evolving into this project called Monero. Now, a lot of the reasons why I trust the Monero project and not the Bitcoin project so much is that not only did Bitcoin mining get um, get um, taken over by the ASICs machines, but also the development of Bitcoin today, they keep saying they're going to have a privacy incorporated, a privacy layer incorporated into Bitcoin and they're going to do this and that. But think about it. When you have a company like Blockstream that runs the development of Bitcoin, that company is actually um, owned by, um, in some way or form by MasterCard. Now, MasterCard and Visa are the leaders in the payments industry. Why would they ever, uh, you know, allow for um, the technology to develop in in a competing, you know, in a competing protocol that would uh, threaten their market share? That would never happen. So you can see that the you just gotta you just gotta follow like the the trail of money i think the funding who funds the bitcoin development today it's a party that has no interest in seeing bitcoin succeed as a payment mechanism on the other hand monero is being is being uh, funded through community donations anytime there is um, a requirement to improve a certain technology in monero they ask for donations the developers are mainly anonymous uh, which is a good thing, in my opinion. Um, and they fund it, the community funds it through their donations, and they carry out the improvements and they get implemented. So I see, uh, and you know, and there was no ICO type, uh, there was no like pre-mine or any, any scammy thing when Monero was created. It was created under the same circumstances as Bitcoin. And okay. if you see the supply schedule, it's very similar to Bitcoin. So um, to answer your question, sir, when you have um, uh, such a large ecosystem with probably like 18,000 coins, um, you need to first distinguish between all of those, um, you know, gaming coins and staking coins and this and that and insurance and loans and all of those coins that are proof of stake that are basically startup companies that call themselves cryptocurrencies, but it honestly has no relationship to a completely decentralized cryptocurrency um, that is a currency um, that is mined on thousands and millions of computers globally. Um, those are just little companies that call themselves crypto and they're trying to, you know, replace a certain function in finance. There's a long way for them to go from okay. actually becoming a decentralized cryptocurrency. Well, on the other hand, you have, you actually have these other cryptocurrencies that are mined and they're actually decentralized to varying degrees. Bitcoin, you could say, is decentralized to some degree, not fully. 
I think it's got these centralized pockets. The 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 Bitcoin mining that's happening in people's homes is probably is a good thing. So what you can say is is we got to look at when we look at um, a store of value, like coming back to you and me, and where we could look into the crypto ecosystem to store value, like we would with gold or silver. We need to look at a, a currency that has a real world use case that is decentralized and that is not susceptible to being overtaken and shut down. You okay. know, it has to be censorship resistant. It has to function like cash. Gold functioned like cash back in the day. You know, we exchanged value uh, with gold before we started hoarding the gold um, as a store of value. So the medium of exchange function came before the store of value function. And why do I say that? You know, in the Roman Empire, when they started, and even before that, when the empires start decaying and falling, you know, like falling when they go into downfall, they start, um, they started to mix copper into the gold coins and dilute the value of gold coins that created inflation in those empires. And, and that inflation led to starvation and to basically the empires falling and collapsing. So when that happened, the real gold coins with the higher with the highest um, gold components, people stopped using them in transactions. They would they would use the coins that had more copper in them. So that's just Gresham's law, you know, in practice, where bad money drives out good money. Right. If I have good money, like if I have gold coins, I'm gonna not spend that. I'm going to go and spend my dollars first, right? Because that's bad money. It's not scarce. So, yeah. So bad money drives out good money. And why was I saying that? <laughs> well, the, the monetary properties of the coinage that was is, issued in the Roman Empire. I think the point you're building to is yeah. that crypto assets have to actually have these properties of good money and not just exactly. play act at having these properties. Exactly, exactly. And that. Yeah, and we're seeing that with only very few of those coins. Bitcoin is number one for good reason, uh, but it has certain uh, short shortcomings. And I think you know the, the, that's what I mainly try and highlight on my tweets and in my presentation here and everything. Absolutely, this this long form <laughs> interview. So it, we, we've covered so much territory, and it's been endlessly fascinating. Are there any thoughts you'd like to leave our audience with? I'd like to say to anybody listening to to not take a, a lot of the stuff you hear um, through official channels uh, at face value. Question everything um, because we live in an environment where uh, if you don't question, if you don't research yourself, uh, develop the develop the habit of researching on your own. Do your own research, uh, no matter what it is, whether it's um, it's something you're about to eat or if it's something you're, you know, saving your money and putting your life savings in, like do a lot of research because, um, yeah, because ultimately we all got to study this. And uh, I think the main thing lacking in the crypto space is education. Um, right. Yeah. And that will probably help us all get uh, quickly adopted uh, into this new system. And hopefully that system will help liberate uh, a lot of people. That's Nam. my hope. Nam, thanks so much. Yeah, this has been great. 
I really appreciate you taking the time and, and actually going into a lot of detail and explaining these things that are very, very difficult concepts for most people to get their mind wrapped around. So thank, thank you very much. Coming all the way from Oman on the other side of the world, I appreciate you getting up super early to do this interview. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a complete pleasure absolutely and i'd love to do it again if you want to do it again sometime to do a part two there's so much to talk about it you know regarding this subject yeah. uh, i hope i have been able to shed some light on on the crypto space 100 thank you so much all right thank, thank you. you so much have a great day this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com <laughs>